Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, a place for interdisciplinary conversations in the broad world of business research. My name is Andrew Jennings, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, leave a rating and let other people know about the show, too. And if you have ideas for the show, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. All right, time for the episode. Our guest today is Miriam Baer, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. We'll be discussing her new book, Myths and Misunderstandings in White Collar Crime. I'll have a link to the book in the show notes for the episode. Miriam, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Miriam, I wanted to start this interview with maybe an overview of your work as a scholar, as a lawyer that really has culminated in some ways in this book. Could you maybe introduce for the listeners your background as a lawyer, as a scholar, and what motivated you to write this book now? Oh, thank you so much. I was a federal prosecutor from 1999 to 2004 in the the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, which is essentially when you think about federal prosecutions in Manhattan, that is the main office that handles all of that. And that is often seen as the office that handles some of our most important white-collar crime cases. And in fact, after initially rotating through the entry-level units, I eventually became a prosecutor who focused on prosecutions of different types of fraud, and in fact, bribery as well. So I had some kickback cases and I had some fraud cases. So on one hand, I had this background in federal criminal law, and in fact, it was around the time that I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act had been enacted in 2002. And so by 2003-2004, a lot of companies were looking to increase their corporate compliance programs, and they were very interested in hiring former prosecutors. So that is actually how I landed at Verizon. So I learned about corporate compliance and corporate crime. I had a nice front seat to watching what companies were doing to improve their internal efforts at enforcing laws and reducing wrongdoing. And then eventually I decided I wanted to become an academic. And in fact, from the very beginning, I wanted to have one foot in the corporate world and one foot in the criminal world. And then in terms of why I decided to write a book, I had been writing many papers on the topics of corporate crime and white collar crime. And those papers had been fueled, among other things, by my perspective, which was somewhat unique, right, in that I was a federal prosecutor with a really well-steeped in federal white-collar crime. But when you teach criminal law at a typical law school, you spend a lot of times with state statutes. And that was something I noticed from the get-go was how different the state statutes were and how they were designed and structured than the typical federal white-collar statutes. So that had already been an interest of mine. And then this all culminated in writing a book and I started writing the book, really was before COVID, was the fact that I wanted to speak to a broader audience. It was fun, and it always is fun, to have conversations with fellow scholars and especially legal scholars, and I always learn so much from them. But now I wanted to broaden my audience and speak to the public, in part because I felt that there were certain, and I use the word myths, sticky beliefs out there. And I wanted to use my own perspective to shine a light on those beliefs and explain why they may not be right. I'd like to come to some of those myths or uh, sticky beliefs, as you say, in a few minutes, but maybe to level set to start off with, you note that you have a, a unique advantage in the criminal side of scholarly portfolio and that you were 
a white-collar crime prosecutor. Perhaps to level set just what is white-collar crime, I think that might be helpful for kind of a broad audience or even for academics who are listening. Is white-collar crime a certain type of criminal offense, or is it a criminal offense done by a certain type of person? The term was actually coined by Edwin Sutherland, who was a sociologist and criminologist, and he gave this very famous 1939 address to the American Sociological Association. He was talking about people of high social status who were harming others and not in any way punished for it. And he, there are a whole bunch of reasons he was obviously interested in that. So there are certainly, I think you would find many criminologists who would say that it's about the offender, right? So they would define it broadly as certain types of deceitful actions taken by people of high social status. The FBI, and I think many legal scholars, are more likely to define white-collar crime as a type of offense. And in fact, in an offense that would be described by a nonviolent offense involving deception, right? Violations of loyalty and trust. I will say that is what interests me more because I'm interested in assuming we have laws that are designed to deal with that problem. And I think it's a really important problem. How does a society deal with deceptive behavior and deceptive behavior that causes losses and harms of a monetary or property sort? I think that's extremely important. Every society that's going to have complex financial interactions and is going to be able to also have, not to mention, we have regulatory and political institutions. If you're going to have healthy institutions, you have to have some way of dealing with those kinds of behaviors. And so I'm interested in those laws. I am interested in the laws that we would think of as white collar crime laws. And those laws tend to fall into three categories, which I would say there's a fraud bucket, bribery slash corruption bucket, and an obstruction of justice or obstruction of proceedings bucket. Not to say there aren't other things out there, but those three are quite core, it seems to me, to what people are often talking about when they talk about white-collar crime. You noted at the top that the criminal law that's taught in in law schools and, and that most people are probably most exposed to or think about the most is state criminal law. And you've identified some distinguishing substantive features of white collar offenses. But in the book, you talk about some distinguishing characteristics between white collar crime and other areas of penal law, particularly, say, state criminal law. I wondered if you could maybe walk us through some of those distinctions that you introduce in the book, kind of ways to think about not just the substantive nature of the offense, but perhaps how the statutes, the law and doctrine itself actually differ in the white collar versus non-white collar context. So if you want to understand some of the problems I think we run into in white collar, federal white collar crime, I think it's helpful to visualize white collar statutes as compared with what I would call sort of state statutes, maybe like murder or something like homicide. So if I were to visualize state statutes, the ones that I often teach in a criminal law class, I would imagine a series of almost like a stairway or steps, right? And there's certain language we were used to hearing first degree, second degree, third degree, fourth degree, right? And we all understand if you've ever watched Law and Order, You intuitively understand that a first-degree offense is probably more serious than a third-degree offense, whether it's robbery or rape or homicide. And in fact, those 
steps, right, those degrees are distinguished not only by the behavior that's being punished, right, that there are abstract elements of the behavior that make it more serious or less serious, and a legislature has figured that out in advance, but that therefore there are different levels of punishment. Again, there'll be a range, but those ranges differ depending on where you are on those steps. Now, if I were to visualize federal criminal law, at least white-collar crime, and the example I often give is fraud, we have tons of fraud statutes that are delineated by the type of fraud you engage in, like mail fraud or wire fraud or securities fraud or healthcare fraud. But those don't have any real moral valence to them. And in fact, often can have roughly the same. There's no first degree, second degree, third degree built into them. In fact, they're much flatter. So we often talk about the visual I give in the book, as I say, if I were thinking of federal statutes, I just imagine a bunch of umbrellas. I think of each statute as a really big umbrella. It's flat and it covers a ton of territory, which means everything from the garden variety con, which might be, for example, someone puts on eBay a vase that they claim is worth lots and lots of money that they what's junk and they sell it to someone. That is a form of mail or wire fraud. And yet we would charge that under the same federal statute as maybe something our former president engages in. And that a multi-million dollar fraud, the idea that that's charged in the same way as the garden variety fraud, my concern isn't punishment because I actually think the sentencing provision, we have the sentencing guidelines in the federal system and they slice and dice and make a pretty decent job of trying to sort the differences between the worst fraudster in the world and the not so bad, but they don't do it in the same way as the legislature saying, here are some basic categories and here's how they're different. So that flatness, that use of umbrellas in the federal system, it sets the table for confusion. So that's one of the reasons if we have undifferentiated frauds, all each are being charged under the same statute. That's why every time you've heard someone's been charged with a fraud, so say it's wire fraud or mail fraud, you might hear on television news something like, so-and-so has been charged with three counts of fraud and is now facing as much as 60 years imprisonment. Now, that simply is taking what's happening is the media simply extracts from each count. They say, oh, fraud. They were charged with fraud and it's a 20-year offense. That doesn't mean that you're actually facing 20 years imprisonment. It's just that you have this undifferentiated offense. And so everything from the worst fraud to the not so bad is all under the same umbrella. So yeah, Congress says you can be punished anywhere up to 20 years imprisonment. That doesn't mean that's the likelihood or that's the norm. And yet we hear, we, the public, every time we hear someone's been arrested, which is when in some ways we're most interested in a case, oh, this person has been charged in three or five or however many counts, and now they're facing some extremely large amount of time in prison. That creates confusion. That for certainly for the average fraudster, it makes it seem like the government's being draconian. For the non-average fraudster, it might make it seem like the government is hell-bent on a very high punishment. And then later on, when the defendant either pleads out or there is a trial and the defendant is ultimately sentenced to something much less, which could still be a significant punishment, it will seem like a huge gap. And I think that's the beginning of where we start to see these sort of swings in what the public is told when someone is criminally prosecuted. And I think that is, again, a problem of our statutes. And so we have a tendency, we blame prosecutors for lots of things, and I'm sure they do lots of bad things, but we tend to overlook the extent to which our statutes in the federal system are the source, or the beginning, the origin of a lot of our confusion. 
I'd like to come back to some of the confusion in just a moment, but I'm imagining that there might be a number of listeners out there who have a question as they're listening to a former federal prosecutor, a former compliance expert, or a current compliance expert, former compliance practitioner, scholar who teaches at the intersection and, and researches at the intersection of criminal law and, and corporate law. I suspect there's a question out there that you may have heard once or twice before, which is, why is white-collar crime so under-enforced in this country compared to all of the other criminal offenses that might be out there? Why do prosecutors lack the will to pursue these cases as vigorously as they're pursuing other criminal offenses? Or am I just begging the question there? One of the things I do in the book is I try to distinguish what I call pathologies of lawmaking, pathologies of enforcement, and pathologies of discourse. So what I've been talking about right now is a little bit about our lawmaking and the fact that we rely on these extremely broad statutes that are undifferentiated. You could call that a lawmaking problem, but also that what that does is it fuels a discourse problem. There's obviously overlaps of all these pathologies. What you're alluding to with enforcement, I'd say, has two elements to it. No doubt we as a society should care whether or not we are effectively enforcing our criminal laws against both individuals in high places, for example, CEOs and executives who we think might be violating law, but also corporations themselves. So we should care about both of those things. And so if we think there's an enforcement shortfall, by all means, that's something that we should study and we should ask ourselves, could we be doing better? And I don't doubt that we could do better. On the other hand, there are these narratives that take hold, and you allude to them when you say, are you begging the question? And one of those narratives is something like, oh, prosecutors could totally do this if they wanted to. It's just a lack of will. So this is what I refer to as a plenary or imperial prosecutor theory that just says prosecutors can do whatever they want in this arena. And I actually think that's not true. I tend to believe, and I think there are certainly examples of it in the book, to prove someone guilty of, for example, of crimes like fraud, you have to show specific intent. And especially if you're talking about top executives, they can in many ways say things like, I didn't have the intent to cause all these shortfalls. I actually believed what I was saying. I may have been not so smart. I might not have been competent, but I didn't intend to cause this harm. Indeed, that seems to be something along the lines that one could expect to see in the Sam Bankman-Fried trial, right? We can see that narrative is already something that the defense attorneys have been putting out there. Now, that's not to say the government can't rebut that. It can. But one of the things I talk about in my book is that there's almost like two thresholds, and I think we tend to only think about one. So there's what I refer to as the liability threshold and the viability threshold. So liability is the kind of story we think about when we teach or when our students take classes, which is what are the elements of this crime? What do I have to prove in order for this person to be found guilty? And those tend to be pretty stable. That's set by the legislature, but also judges obviously tease that out in their judicial decisions. And it's the kind of thing you can look up in a case book or on Westlaw. And at some point, you can reach some consensus about what the liability line looks like. And certainly when all facts are known to everybody, in other words, if we were all omniscient, we could see and hear and be inside everyone's heads, then yes. It's actually, there would be a lot of people would fall under those umbrellas I was talking about, because in fact, it's not all that hard to commit fraud. And I'm sure there are many people who are technically liable in that they have violated our federal fraud laws. On the other hand, the line of viability is very different. So viability is the prosecutor asking herself, 
when do I have a strong enough case that I feel comfortable placing this before a grand jury and then eventually a jury if necessary? When do I feel I have enough? That's the way a prosecutor might pose it. And that is completely predictive. It's somewhat subjective. It's office-driven. And it's also driven by past experience. And so I draw on some of the literature of even linguistics, which has shown that when people hear the word fraud, or for that matter, corruption, they have a paradigmatic case in their head. And that's true of prosecutors, too. And that's partially informed by, hey, how well did we do the last time something like this popped up? Now, why could that be a problem? If your prior experience was there's certain elements of a case that really make it better to show to a jury, for example, someone trying to hide certain things. Hiding might not be, by the way, or erasing emails or shredding documents might not be an element of the actual fraud case itself. But all of those behaviors are very useful to the prosecutor to show to the jury. There start to be these, and Sam Buell's talked about them, badges of fraud. There, there are these things that prosecutors look for in their case to give them that sense of reassurance that, oh, okay, if I bring this case will win. And when those are missing, even though they may not be elements of the case, you're going to see much less likelihood of prosecutors taking risk. Now, I don't think that means necessarily that the prosecutor simply lacks the will or that the prosecutor is in bed. The idea that these prosecutorial elites or government elites are in bed with corporate elites and they're all scratching each other's back. I think it's a much more subtle process where people come to believe, no, for this case to work, I really need X, Y, and Z. And so that's a much more subtle process that you have to start to think about. What are ways that you can solve that gap between viability and liability? And what are the various tools that you could give the prosecutor? Not surprisingly, for me at least, this gets back to the question of instead of having this one umbrella called fraud, which comes to become larded with all these additional meanings, would it be more helpful if we had first degree, second degree, third degree, where that prosecutor who doesn't want to take a risk with the umbrella fraud statute might be more willing to take a risk with something like third degree fraud if it were written in a particular way. That's my explanation. I'm not going to sit there and say to you that we have perfect enforcement. We don't. Often it's a question of resources, which there aren't enough of. But I do think that there's a tendency to oversimplify the narrative. And that's one of the things I'm trying to confront in the book. You've talked about some of the potential causes for myths or sticky beliefs around white collar crime and One prime example you offered is this tendency to look at the statutory maximum for an offense and and say this is what somebody faces when, in fact, that's not a realistic number for most defendants. So you've been thinking about this for a while. I wonder if you can maybe just talk about uh, or highlight some of those myths or misunderstandings that uh, perhaps listeners should confront themselves with today and maybe think about a white-collar crime a bit differently after reading, hopefully reading the book or at least listening to this interview. So I think I've already alluded to some. So obviously there are these myths about punishment. When you hear someone say XYZ faces as much time as some enormous number, if convicted, be very careful of what that actually means. I think also to claim that prosecutors can do anything they want in a federal criminal case, particularly a federal criminal case actually involving wealthy white-collar defendants is just simply untrue, partly because the statutes themselves do depend on demonstrating one's state of mind, but also because, in fact, this is something that this goes more maybe to 
those who write about criminal law. There's this wonderful pyramid that Alexandra Nadipoff, a professor at Harvard, has created in her writing where she says, look, it's wrong to assume that everyone in the criminal justice system is enjoying the rights that the people at the tippy top in the federal system enjoy. And she's right. Folks in state courts who've been, for example, charged in misdemeanors may really never have any opportunity to rebut what the state has alleged, at least as a practical matter. But in the same way, you could take what she's arguing. Now, she's saying, hey, don't assume what goes on in the state courts is anything like what we see in the federal courts. But I would say the flip of that, right? Don't assume that what happens with federal criminal law and federal white collar criminal law looks anything like what you've heard about in the state courts. In fact, people do have, if you're a criminal defendant, access to justice and to the tools of justice to test the government's case. Now, that's not a bad thing, but then that means you need to acknowledge that federal prosecutors can't just pick people out at will. I think some of the other myths I talk about, I think it is problematic when we portray white-collar crime as a story, and a lot of this has to do with which studies get cited. That will be something like there was X billion dollars worth of white collar crime this past year. And then the next sentence, it portrays as big, bad corporations all plundered everybody, poor victims. And so it's very much a class-based analysis. And one of the things I talk about in the book is if you dig into these studies, it's a little more ambiguous. Oh, there's no question that white collar crime costs us upwards of a billion dollars every year, and that's bad. But the problem is that some of the victims are organizations themselves. Sometimes the government is the victim. Certainly foreign governments, if they're investing, are victims. Certainly corporations can be victims. Some of these big numbers are reflecting things like employee theft, embezzlement. That's not the story that people want to tell. By the same token, and I do cite them, I don't spend a lot of time on it, but I do cite them in the book. There are several criminologists, Michael Benson in particular, who have published papers. They call it the democratization of white collar crime. Not all the offenders are, for example, extremely wealthy white males, if that was the group that you had in mind. You can find that over time, there have been prosecutions and therefore identification of, for example, we know that both people of color and women, you can start to see in some of the numbers, this is what these papers, when they talk about democratization of crime, people, as they get into positions of opportunity, depending on the level of opportunity, are able to engage in those kinds of wrongdoing. Now, that's not to say that in any way is the same amount or causes the same harm, but it is to say that I think deception and deception under pressure, because that's what we're really talking about. What do people do when they're under pressure and they have the opportunity? They engage in certain deceptive acts. Maybe they see it as self-defense. Maybe they see it as exploitation. Who knows? But they engage in behaviors that we would all, again, if we could see it all from above, we'd say, yeah, that violates various crimes and violate various statutes. And it does behoove us, I think, to ask as a society, why does that behavior occur? And recognize that it may be more universal than the story we are telling ourselves. That's what I'm trying to get away is none of us is completely a victim. None of us is perhaps completely a villain. Obviously, there's some really bad villains out there, but it's wrong to think only those villains are only those guys yeah. over there and nobody else is a victim. So those are some of the myths I'm trying to explode when I discuss them in chapter six. Your book identifies a number of pathologies in, in white collar 
law, particularly federal white-collar criminal law, that perhaps contribute to substantively undesirable outcomes in some cases, or at least to myth-making on the part of the public, which is its own harm, perhaps. And you advocate in the article several systematic reforms that uh, might bring better clarity, better coherence, transparency to white-collar crime and white-collar crime enforcement. Could you perhaps talk us through those at a high level? Yeah. And so this is my contribution to the conversation is to, I think this is the kind of paradigm shift is tendency is to focus on the Department of Justice, on prosecutors' offices. And I don't deny that there may be needs for reform, particularly in how the Department of Justice deals with corporations. But I think it is a mistake to focus only on prosecutors. And so the last two chapters of my book focus on statutes. I think that a lot of our problems stem from our federal criminal code. And so I am making an argument for what one might call a new design of the code, at least as its white collar crimes are concerned. And so I lay out this sort of four steps or four reforms that I would recommend. And so one of them is to go back to this idea, you have these umbrella statutes. They are umbrellas in more ways than one. So they not only take up, they tend to not differentiate, for example, different types of fraud, but often these umbrella statutes, and the example is the Hobbs Act is the best example, include more than one type of crime. Um, So Hobbs Act includes everything from robbery to bribery. That's extortion under color of right. And so that's when you bundle, if you will, more than one crime under a single statutory umbrella, what are you doing? You're creating the enhanced likelihood of confusion, particularly if you care about things like data collection. You're making it more likely that there will be confusion in how to count something and how to define something. So first thing is, let's unbundle some of those crimes. Second of all is, let's make sure we label them correctly. So for example, honest services fraud, you, Andrew, and I both know that honest services fraud is really usually a form of bribery or kickbacks, but that's not the average person hearing honest services fraud thinks, oh, that's just fraud. And they might think of it as a form of no different from any other fraud. If we, again, care about getting our numbers right, I would think we want to actually label things in a way that the ordinary person could understand what is being criminally prosecuted. So once you unbundle statutes and, you know, get the labels right, the next question would be, do we have a lot of statutes out there that seem to be different from each other only in terms of something like what kind of medium you used or who your victim was? And my, of course, fraud is a perfect example of that. Today, at least, I don't think it matters one whit that one person engaged in mail fraud and another person engaged in wire fraud. What really matters is the fraud. So I would want to see some way of consolidating those statutes and then creating some sort of appendix that could be extended that simply made clear what are the various ways in which you commit those frauds. And then finally, once you consolidated all those statutes, then you do the really hard work, and this is, would be you'd have some sort of commission advising Congress, of creating gradations. Grading is my big thing here, of a creating those kinds of degrees for fraud. And in fact, the way I put it in my book is first we eliminate the meaningless horizontal distinctions, meaning who cares about mail versus wire fraud? It's all fraud. But then we need to devise the meaningful vertical distinctions, the difference between the worst 
kind of fraud and maybe the not so bad. And then I give potential levers that you might want to use. And I give examples. I say, here are four examples. Let me tell you about four potential frauds out there that are just hypotheticals. And then I spend time sort of comparing them and asking myself, what are the aspects of this that maybe make this more or less harmful or more or less culpable? All understanding, by the way, I'm somewhat agnostic on how one comes out on what should be first degree fraud. I would expect it would be something like some sort of fraud that someone has planned for a long time. It is particularly exploitive. That actually means more to me than the actual amount of money that others may disagree. But to me, what matters is we as a society have that debate and we put the results of that debate up front in our statutes. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview in this book? And I imagine that writing a book like this perhaps raises more questions for you than you answer it in the book. So to the extent that this has been a generative process for future work, are there any previews of of future avenues or papers uh, that you might want to explore? So I think coming out of a time period when people often say things like law doesn't matter, and I would say law does matter. Law matters. Statutes matter. Language matters. And we as a society, if we care about things like white collar crime, which I think we should, we need to dive deeper into our statutes. We need to all become technocrats and learn more about those statutes and what they say. We shouldn't just rely on insiders to explain those statutes to us. So that's one takeaway. And the second takeaway is I hope I can capture some of those folks who have felt estranged from our legal institutions and don't trust them. I want to find ways to recapture those folks and get them back to thinking that our government can be a source of good and that one way it can be a source of good is by, if you will, coordinating and conducting these debates and that the government itself can improve on its enforcement efforts, that we don't have to just always say, oh, these guys are bad guys. There's a situation out there and we can correct and fix those situations. In terms of future work, my ideal is this image of some sort of commission conducting hearings where we have these cool debates about what makes something worse or not so bad version of fraud, bribery, or obstruction is that would bring different people together speaking to each other from different sides of the aisle. And that is something in the rest of my work, I've become very interested in polarization and how polarization, the ways in which we're, we've become as a society, we have all these cleavages, how that polarization impacts things like corporate compliance and how corporate compliance may be able to rely on certain tools to push back or to somehow overcome the polarization that has increased so much in the last several decades and that I fear is likely to increase as we move towards a new presidential election. So that's my interest is not just white collar crime, but really the atmosphere in which enforcement takes place in ways in which we can improve that atmosphere. Our guest today has been Miriam Barrett, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. We've discussed her new book, Myths and Misunderstandings in White Collar Crime. I'll add a link to the book in the show notes for the episode. Miriam, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, rate the show, and let other people know about it too. If you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. 
My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.